Hello and welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, Rich Ireland's crime podcast for the Irish City Star and Irish Mirror. I'm crime and defence editor Michael O'Toole. Paul Healy joins me. Hello Paul. Hello Mick. So we are continuing our coverage of the trial of Joseph Puska. Now today was day nine and just to recap, Mr Puska is accused of the murder on the 12th of January 2022 of schoolteacher Eisling Murphy on Grand Canal Way in Capon Kerr in Tullamoran County Offaly. Now Mr Puska has an address at Lainali Grove in Mokla in County Offaly and he denies the charge. He's on trial in front of a jury of nine men and three women and the trial judge is Mr Justice Tony Hunt. As I said this is the ninth day and Mr Justice, Mr Puska denies murder. So as the last few days there have been a significant number of witnesses today I counted eight. Paul was in court today um, with the greatest of respect in them a lot of them would not necessarily uh, be the most important of evidence from a journalistic perspective I'll put it that way. But there is one uh, witness we're going to focus on today and that was witness four and that was a man called Miroslav Sedlacek. So he was, as I say, he was number four. So what was his role, Paul? Yes, yeah, so uh, the, 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 he probably was the most important witness of the day in terms of his evidence, again, was the lengthiest and it is in relation to a lot of the other evidence that we've already heard in the case. So to remind just our listeners um, that you would have heard, uh, we would have heard in this trial already evidence from members of Angarda Shiakana who met with the accused man, Josef Puska, in hospital uh, on the on the 14th of January 2022, two days after Ashling Murphy was killed. And we heard evidence about the interview process that the guards had with Mr. Puska and the alleged um, things that Mr. Puska said, including an alleged confession uh, to the murder of Ashling Murphy there and then. And we heard that he was cautioned and all of that. But we heard that that process was done through the facilitation of a translator. And today we heard from that very translator his own direct evidence, and that was Mr. Sedlacek. Uh, so just to remind people, Mr. Puska is a, a Slovakian national, and uh, obviously that means that the interpreter would be a Slovakian interpreter translator. Yes, indeed. He, he translates Slovak, as we heard. Uh, he lives in Ireland, and the services that he provided to the Gardaí on that day, on the 14th, was all over the phone. So there were two conversations. Uh, between a member of Angarda Shiakana, Mr. Sedlacek, and Mr. Puska. And th- that member was Detective Garda Brian Jennings, who we heard evidence from already. Um, but uh, Mr. Sedlacek said he didn't know what Garda he was speaking to, just that he can confirm that he was speaking to the same Garda in both phone calls. So the first phone call was just before lunchtime on the 14th. And I'll get into that in a moment. And then the second phone call was just before six o'clock in the evening. And that phone call uh, was a shorter phone call, and that is where the alleged confession was made. But let's deal with the the first phone call first. So that was in relation to, uh, so uh, Mr. Sedlacek said that that phone call was a 45-minute phone call, and the topic of the conversation uh, he he basically said was in relation to an alleged assault that happened in Blanchardstown the night prior. So you may recall, listeners may recall, the allegation of uh, this assault incident in Blanchestown and uh, that the guards were at the time investigating uh, an actual assault that had happened, a stabbing incident happened at Blanchestown Shopping Centre. And Mr. Puska was alleging that he was 
a victim of a stabbing in the Blanchestown area and that's why they went and called to him and that's why they facilitated this phone call with Mr. Sedlicek. So the, the first thing he talks about is how he got from Tullamore to Blanchestown where the alleged attack happened. Yes, so uh, Mr. Sedlicek said that uh, uh, Joseph Puska was saying over the phone that he basically how he got from Tullamore to Blanchardstown via taxi. Um, then he told how he got out of the car, crossed the street and walked, he said, not too far, uh, where he was then attacked by two guys who he said were of dark skin. Um, and he, he said that Yosef could not remember much more detail than that. He couldn't describe exactly is what he said. And he then... But he, so he would have said, sorry, uh, sorry, I think he would have said, um, they're roughly the same height as him, which is about 170 centimetres. Yes, he said they were about 170 centimetres height and, and, and roughly the same height as him. But as we've heard already from the evidence yesterday, uh, Mr. Puska was not able to give a description of the second man uh, and, and was only able to give a rough description of the first man. And we heard just that the attack, the alleged attack, happened in, in a, a near an apartment complex uh, near a field. Uh, somewhere close to the to to Blanchardstown shopping centre, and that's what the translator relayed. Um, he said that in terms of Mr. Puska's reason for going out there, he said that he was meeting a girl, uh, and he said that this girl might have been Hungarian. Um, he didn't have her details on his phone. The guards asked for those details, but he said his phone had been stolen in the assault incident, and so he didn't have those details. And he said that he'd actually gone home to retrieve those details from his house and he didn't specify any more details about that lady. He also then, uh, uh, Mr. Sedlicek said that Mr. Puska said over the phone that he suffered bad injuries, that he was knocked to the ground, that he could hardly move. Um, and that was, that was in the alleged assault and he said that his condition was quite severe. Uh, he was also asked by the guards to give a description of his bicycle uh the color of his bicycle um and he did that and uh, at this stage mr sedlicek was asked about how mr puska was communicating this information and was he doing so freely uh, and he was asked that by the prosecution counsel uh miss Marie lawler and he said he was speaking freely sometimes quickly and he often had to interrupt him just to be able to translate him uh, in in live time and just to explain to people uh, mr sedlicek said that he wasn't um he wasn't taking word for word notes uh, of what Mr. Puska was saying, but he was taking note of the odd word or two. So we would come back to that in terms of he was kind of cross-examined about particular words that he had taken down. Uh, and that was to kind of remind him of the conversation, but he wasn't necessarily referring to those notes as he was speaking to the court today. He was speaking from his own memory of the conversation that he had, and then he would refer to his statement if he needed to. Um, so in those notes, just he he was he referred to his notes about the the woman who he said was a friend. Mr. Puska said was a friend, and he also was asked to uh, by Gardy to describe the clothes that he was wearing at the time of this supposed attack in Blanchardstown. And he said that he was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, blue jeans and a t-shirt. Um, and that Mr. Sedlicek is what Joseph Puska said that he was wearing on the night in question of this alleged incident in Blanchardstown. And then I think he, after that, he, he mentions that he, he got a cab to Blanchardstown and what, there was evidence of that, that he, he arrived near in Dublin, near Houston after getting a lift yesterday and got a cab to Blanchardstown. And the, Mr. Uh, Sedlicek said 
in his notes he has the word stabbing circled. Yes, he had the word stabbing circled and in reference to that, uh, Mr. Puska had said that he was stabbed in the course of the incident in Blanchardstown. We heard that Mr. Puska had uh, a stab injury to his lower abdomen and that was observed by the guardie. So Mr. Puska's allegation on the phone was that that is how he received that particular stab injury. Just before, can I just ask one incidental question? The, 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 just so I, I, we, we pronounce Mr. Puska's name. It's Yo- the, the interpreter said Yosef, is it? Yosef? Yeah, yeah, it's Yosef Puska, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. So uh, next, I believe they talk about the 6 p.m. call when uh, Mr. Puska is alleged to have confessed to the murder. Yeah, now, now up until now, the word confession hasn't really been used, uh, but the witness today referred to this as a confession. Um, so he said that this phone call began uh, by Yosef wanting to know, was he a suspect in this case? And that was because uh, a Garda had shown up with a warrant looking for uh, his clothing, for his belongings. And so he asked uh, whether what, why they wanted the warrant. And he asked, was he a, a suspect? And Mr. Sedlicek said that the Garda explained to him, and you could hear this over the phone, that Mr. Puska was not a suspect, that he was a, as he called it, a so-called person of interest. And he said that Yosef didn't know what that meant. And he asked the Garda to explain that to him. And he explained to him uh, that there was a small difference as a person who is not really a suspect, but a person that the Garda pays attention to is what he remembers the conversation going as. Um, What followed from that then was that Yosef said to him that he wanted to uh, he wanted him to translate uh, word for word, basically, what he was going to say next. I'm just going to read out what uh, Mr. Sedlicek said. Mr. Sedlicek actually spoke at a reasonably slow pace, so it was quite, uh, for a reporter like me, it was easy to be able to almost word for word translate what he said, which is great, because we can then give you the full quotes as opposed to just uh, paraphrasing. So he said, uh, he, Yosef Fuska, asked me to translate it accurately, exactly. This was still between me and him before I kept on interpreting anything. It was quite spontaneous. Everything came quite quickly. He said, tell him everything exactly as I tell you. Tell him I did it, that I killed her, but please tell him that I didn't do that intentionally. He also said, tell him I didn't want to do it. I'm very sorry that it happened. And then he recalls that uh, Mr. Puska was then cautioned by the Garda and hear, he heard that exchange over the phone. So in relation to and the call... I think the, sorry, I think the, the, the interpreter said that that was a standard caution and he would say that Mr. Puska understand, understood what it meant. Yeah, he was asked did Mr. Puska understand and he, he said that Mr. Puska did understand what that meant and he translated to, to Yosef uh, in relation to that. Um, and, and he recalls that he said he understood. Um, he then said that Josip Puska had a number of questions that he wanted to put to the Garda. And then the translator then put those questions to him. So the questions were in relation to, uh, he said, sorry, just before that, he said that he, 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 there was, a, there was um, a question from the guards as to whether uh, Mr. Puska had a solicitor. And uh, Mr. Puska said that he didn't have a solicitor, uh, but that maybe in the future he would ask for one. But at that point in time, they proceeded without a solicitor. And so in relation to his questions, he said Yosef's questions 
were in relation to the well-being of his own family. And he said Yosef was very concerned about the safety of his family. Uh, I know that from his questions. His question was, after I've made this confession, do you think that my family members will be public? So what he meant by that is, would the identities of his family members become known to the public? Um, he w- Mr. Sadlersek recalls that the guard told him that his family members would not necessarily become public, but that his own name, his own identity, would become known to the public. And he was also concerned, his other question was, he was concerned that the family of the girl, as he put it, the family of Ashling Murphy, that they might want to take revenge uh, on his own family for what he did to her. And he was concerned for their safety. And the guard assured him that Ashling Murphy's family were a good family and that they would not seek any revenge and there would be no dispute uh, of any kind, that there was no danger, there was no threat. So then we came to the confession as such, the alleged confession. And uh, the witness, and I thought this was interesting, was asked about Mr. Puska's demeanour over the phone. Um, and he described a notable change between how he was on the phone in the first phone call and how he was in the, you know, the one before lunchtime and then the one in the evening. And he said that his voice had changed significantly from the evening conversation. It was quite different from the morning, from the lunchtime. He said after he made his confession, he was quite emotional. His voice was trembling. His sentences were already quite disjointed. He said, I suppose it was as a result of the situation he was in. His voice had changed significantly. Uh, He said, I would describe him as being in very low spirits. I would say even desperate after the confession. He again wanted to know if his family were going to be safe after this confession, as he put it, and if everything was going to be all right with them. Um, and that that was when, sorry, that was actually when the guard had told him that there was no threat and that everything would be okay. Um, at that point, Mr. Sadlashek recalls that he was told by the guard that Yosef didn't feel very well and they were going to terminate the phone call. And he estimated that that phone call, uh, on the basis of his notes, was about 20 minutes in length. Okay, so I think that would have been the end of the direct evidence from Mr. Sedlicek when he was asked questions by Anne-Marie Laurel, the senior counsel for the state. So then it was the turn of Mr. Bowman, who was who is Mr. Puska's uh, own barrister, so he would have cross-examined him. Yes, Mr. Bowman, senior counsel for, for Mr. Puska, he began to cross-examine the witness and one of the issues that he raised was uh, his use of the word interrogate. Uh, and that he described it as such as an interrogation. And he did, the witness confirm uh, that he referred to it as such. But at the end of the cross-examination process, when that concluded, uh, the prosecuting counsel, Anne-Marie Lawler, actually got up and, and asked him just about that use of that word interrogate again. And he, he, what did you mean by that word interrogate, she said. And he said, by that I mean simply like an interview. And he said, as in the word interview, in the positive sense of the word is what he meant is what he meant by the use of that word interrogate basically is what he said and then there were a couple of issues issues that mr bowen raised so just uh, the guards had uh, allegedly asked do you know anything about the murder can you tell us anything about it and mr sadlicek uh, confirmed that they had said that he also asked them about this quote-unquote spontaneous admission he asked was there a pause does he recall a pause and the witness actually said, yes, uh, he could remember a, a pause, a pause of about 30 seconds or so before Yosef launched into what he termed as a confession. Um, after he learned he was a person of interest, he said he can recall there was some thinking going on. And then Mr. Bowman asked him, did his client say, can he recall his client saying, 
tell them I killed her, but I didn't do so intentionally, um, and that he was sorry. And the witness said, yes, he, that that's the way he said it. And he said that he stressed that point, that he was sorry and that he regrets it. Um, he was also asked if Mr. Puska was reminded that he was under caution. And the witness said, well, probably, yes. And he said, so you don't know for a fact that he was reminded? And he said, no, but he said, intuitively, I would say yes, that he was. I can't recollect exactly. And in relation to that, the witness had said that he, this was not the first time that he has acted uh, in this manner over the phone with Gardy in relation to speaking to someone. And uh, he was asked by Mr. Bowman, well, are you saying then from your experience in dealing with prior incidents like this, that it's more than likely he would have been reminded that he was under caution? And he was saying yes. So that's what he meant by intuitively. But he couldn't say for fact um, that Mr. Puska was reminded that he was under caution. We then took a break for lunch and we came back and the cross-examination of Mr. Sedlicek actually continued after lunch. And um, just in relation to that, uh, we went into the subject of, you know, the, the family uh, being, whether Mr. Puska being concerned for his family, that the, that there might be an act of revenge. He, he confirmed all of that. Um, he also asked, uh, can he recall Mr. Puska saying, I am the person that Gardy are looking for? And uh, the witness actually said, uh, Mr. Sedlicek said his recollection of this is that Mr. Puska said to him, I will tell you the truth. Uh, that's me they're looking for. That's me who did it. So that's his recollection of that conversation. And then he also asked him just about his notes. So there's the word admit and the word murder in his notes. And he said the word murder, he wrote that down after Gardy were explaining the warrant to Mr. Puska and about what happened in Tullamore, the murder of Miss Murphy. That's what they were referring to. And then the word admit, he said, comes from Yosef when he was making his admission to him. Uh, he, Mr. Bowman also just, this is a, uh, I guess it was a moment of levity in the courtroom in, in that it eviscerated a reaction, I suppose, from people in uh, sitting in the courtroom. Um, he just asked briefly about the Mr. Sedrzejczyk, whether he was following the news at all uh, of this trial. And he actually referred to uh, Frank Graney's podcast on this uh, and whether he was following that. And the witness just said no, uh, that he wasn't. So that, that was the end of Mr. Sedlicek, was it, essentially? That was the end of Mr. Mr. Sedlicek. Yeah, he, as I say, his, his, he, he took most of, of the day and, and that kind of rounds off, as it were, an awful lot of evidence that we've already heard about these interactions with Mr. Puska in the hospital and this uh, alleged uh, confession. Um, there were other witnesses in the morning. I just want to briefly mention uh, a, a nurse who gave evidence because her cross-examination, I suppose, is worth noting. Um, and that's uh, Miss Rosalind Gillen. Uh, so she worked in St. James's Hospital. She was there on the 14th of January 2022. She said that Mr. Puska was originally in a six-bay bed and she was involved in moving him to a private room when the guards then spoke to him in this private room. And just Mr. Bowman in cross-examination with her asked uh, whether uh, she can recall any member of Angarda Shiakana asking for a treating physician to ask about Mr. Puska's condition at that point in time uh, or whether he was fit to deal with any Garda at that moment in time in any capacity. And uh, she said that she was not asked that uh, at all. And I think in the afternoon there would have been evidence of DNA samples. Yeah, so I think we're, we're really just get, starting to get into this. There'll be more of this heard tomorrow. Um, so, I mean people might wonder a DNA evidence and that it's obviously of interest, but it, we're only kind of in this, the beginning of this evidence uh, as far as we can tell, certainly what was said in the court. 
Um, so in relation to that, I'm just going to refer to... Just refer to your notes, as they say in court. Yeah. In relation to that, we've got Dr. Kim Connick. So she was the first uh, witness, and she is with Forensic Science Ireland, and she was she's, she's specifically a fingerprint expert. Um, and so she examined three items in this case. She said she examined a Navy fleece raincoat, uh, a mountain bike, a, fal- a Falcon mountain bike, a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses with gold frames. She said the raincoat had heavy stains with a blood-like substance on it. She took photographs of it. She chemically treated it, used UV and white light and another thing that uh, another process called superglue fuming treatment uh, to determine whether there was any fingerprints on the jacket and she found none. She also examined then, as I said, the the Falcon Storm bike. So it had a grey frame, bright green forks and handlebars. She was take, taking photos of it. She, re- she had retrieved it from storage on the 13th of January. Um, Powder just examined it for any marks and she found one mark on the bicycle. She didn't find any marks on the Ray-Ban sunglasses, but they were sent for DNA analysis as well. So that's not her department. Um, in relation to the bike, as I said, she found a mark. And then she would that would have been passed on then to a colleague. So the, the next witness then, Detective Sergeant Damien Carroll, he's with the Garda Technical Bureau. And his uh, expertise basically is fingerprints, thumbs and palm prints. And so he told the court that on the 18th of January, he carried out uh, an analysis, his own analysis of the bike saddle uh, of, of this bike. So we'd heard that the fingerprint that was found on the bike was on the saddle underneath it. Um, and it was kind of accepted uh, by the previous witness that it, it would be typical that you would probably find a fingerprint on, on that particular part under the backside of the saddle because a person might typically lift their bike up. So that's where it wouldn't be unusual as such to find a fingerprint mark there. So he carried out analysis on that. He did a one-to-one comparison using a magnifying glass. And then on the 19th of January, he was given, he already on the 18th had a set of fingerprints from Josip Puska that had been taken from Mr. Puska. On the 19th, he got a second sample. He used that sample then uh, to identify the mark on the bike saddle. And he determined uh, that there that there was a, a correlation between the two. And he said that he was in no doubt uh, that the print on the bike, on the bike saddle, uh, was also Mr. Puskas. And so the next witness after that was a man called John Hode, who I believe was in Forensic Science Ireland at the time. Yes, he's now retired, um, uh, has a significant amount of experience the court heard, and uh, he is a DNA expert and working with Forensic Science Ireland. And we heard briefly that he dealt with swabs that were taken from the fingernails of Ashling Murphy. This is what I'm saying. We may hear, we may come back to that. But in relation to today, we're speaking about the bike. And so he was involved in the analysis of handlebars of the on the bike, and he... Uh, Found a, I got a full sample, full DNA sample from that. Um, excuse me. Uh, he was then tasked with just seeing, could he, uh, could, sorry, yes, he found a full DNA profile from the bike. He then had two other samples that were taken from Joseph Puskas. So there was a DNA sample and then a blood sample uh, that had been taken from him in James's hospital. And he examined all three and determined that they were all a match with one another. They all matched with one another and just... There was a lot of scientific uh, mumbo-jumbo as such. It was very hard to describe here. But ultimately, the ultimate point that he that he made was uh, the chances of any of these samples belonging to anyone other than Josef Puska would be one in a billion. So uh, he determined that 
So that's the blood taken from Mr. Puska, the DNA, and then the DNA on the bike, that they were all a match to Josef Puska. Okay, so then the final witness was uh, Detective Sergeant William Delaney. Yes, Detective Sergeant William Delaney uh, was initially on the stand to confirm uh, his involvement in the execution of the, uh, in, in obtaining the warrants that we've heard about in the case, and one of the warrants being the, the warrant that was used to obtain the belongings from Mr. Puska, uh, and he would have obtained that from a judge in the CCJ. Uh, we then just briefly heard of his involvement in uh, setting up what's kind of known as an ID parade, where there are a number of people lined up uh, as potential uh, persons of interest suspects in the case. And we heard that one of those individuals is a Romanian national who was uh, by the name of Radu Florisiel. And Radu Florisiel had a solicitor with him, we heard, uh, as part of this parade. And he was picked out in the lineup. Um, We heard evidence about this previously, but but we didn't refer to it in the podcast the other day. It's just so much material, but... Jenna Stack, uh, listeners may recall, was one of the key witnesses in this case. And she is the lady who saw a man on top of Ashling Murphy um, and and believed uh, that she was being attacked. And she was the lady who went to then alert other people to what she saw. She ultimately chose uh, Mr. Floriciel, this Romanian national, uh, as being the man she saw. And Mr. Floriciel had been chosen because he had matched the general description that had been given by Miss Stack, and then Miss Stack went on to identify him uh, as being the man that she saw. Um, I would also just point out that it has been heard by the court um, that Miss Stack, she saw a man on top of Ashling Murphy, and that the defence accepts that that man was Josef Puska. Uh, but Josef Puska is saying um, that what Jenna Stack saw is not what she believes she saw, and that he was actually trying to assist Miss Murphy at the time. But uh, just Mr. Uh, Sergeant Delaney was pointing out that he was involved in that ID process uh, with Mr. Floriciel. And at that point in time, he had been identified as matching the general description that Jenna Stack gave. OK, so that was he was the, the final witness. Now, there were, as said, yes. there were we haven't gone into great detail or we haven't really mentioned there were two witnesses earlier before Rosalind Gillen, the, the lady from the hospital, and they were Detective Garda Owen Maher and Garda David Hen- Henry. And they both were basically talking about CCTV evidence. Is that right? Yeah, CCTV evidence. This is just in relation. There were two clips that were shown to us uh, quite briefly. And you, you see uh, two women, uh, a woman running, a woman in pink. And they are identified by the Garda witnesses, uh, in their opinion, as being Jenna Stack and Aoife Marin. And we've heard about their evidence already. There were two houses uh, that the CCTV were taken from. One of them was at uh, Digby's Bridge there. It's called Digby House and then another private residence. Um, some of the footage was better than others. They, they did admit that some of the footage wasn't great in that, it, you know, the figures that we're dealing with in the footage was, were quite far away. Um, but yeah, relatively simple evidence to sum up, I suppose. And that was just at the beginning of the day. OK, so that that's us for the day, really. That was that was the sum total of the evidence, really. That was it. OK. That was it. Yeah, we're back at... 12 o'clock tomorrow, so it's starting a little bit later tomorrow. Lucky for you, because you're going to be there. I might have a lie-in. Yeah. Okay, just before we go, uh, some news for for both of us, I suppose, really, or or the third leg of of this pod, who we very rarely see, but who is instrumental to it. It's Kieran Bradley, who is... Oh, he's going to have to come on now. He's going to have to come on now, so he always sits in the the background and tells us us when we make mistakes, which is, is quite often, unfortunately. But this is Kieran's last pod. So um, 
I mean, I know Paul can speak for himself, but I, I certainly want to thank Kieran. He has been absolutely wonderful. And even on a personal level, this whole pod has really invigorated my, my journalism. I have to say it's really given me a, an awful fantastic boost. And that's all Kieran's fault. And he keeps me and uh, Healy sort of civil. But he has to witness an awful lot of guff off air. So, Kieran, thanks very much for all your help. And we're very, very grateful. Yeah, thank you, Kieran. Um who I hope is listening, but if he's not, he will hear this. <laughs> um, well, just thank you. Thank you to Kieran Bradley. He's been a fantastic producer and has brought this pod to new heights. Uh, you know, we appreciate all the people that have listened, but it's the, it's the great production and the editing in this, and you don't see behind the scenes the amount of editing and work that does go into it. Uh, and he's also been a great referee uh, between me and Mick, as Mick has mentioned. <laughs> um and he, yeah, he's a nice lad. So we wish him all the best uh, in his in his future. And I'm sure no matter where he goes, uh, he will do so successfully. So thanks very much. Thanks very much. And thanks everybody for listening again. <laughs>